0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 11th, um, 2022. It's a, a beautifully warm early spring day. In San Francisco, on the west coast of the United States. I've just been out and I have to admit the sunshine and beauty of San Francisco is jarring when compared with our headlines today. Um, new York Times, Russian forces widen the bombardment in Ukraine. I wasn't sure you could widen this bombardment, it was already wide enough. Um, the FT reports on Russia targeting new cities and calls on Foreign volunteers to join the fight seems as if it's becoming, in a sense, a clash of civilizations, or at least that's how they want to present it, Putin. Um, this image of Kharkiv, uh, Ukraine's second largest city, um, is particularly astonishing. It certainly reminds us of previous wars. Um, um, New York Times has an op-ed today about Ru- Putin wanting a clash of civilizations and asking whether the west i guess that's we in the west uh, are willing uh, to fall for that old uh, that old temptation uh for some though the ukraine represents something very jarring a, a new beginning or an old beginning a return to something else um harari who tends to talk in big historical terms. Yuval Noah Harari, the Israeli historian, argued in The Economist. But what's at stake in the Ukraine is the direction of human history. Very dramatic. Um, and I actually had um, uh, Peter Osnos on my show uh, last week, the uh, biographer of George Soros. Peter Osnos believes that The Ukraine represents a return to the 19th century. I'm going to show a clip now of the Osnos interview uh, before we get into it with my current guest. Peter, we're doing this with all our guests these days, but it's particularly appropriate given we're talking about George Soros. Uh, Peter Osnos, the author of George Soros, uh, A Life in Fall. Peter, uh, who, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days?
1: uh it's an interesting question i wish i'd you asked it to me yesterday so i could think about it i think the world is currently in at this moment literally in the last 10 days we've seen a fundamental profound change the world we thought we lived in the world of post-war europe is changed forever because what what putin has done is Take us back to the 19th century in which we you know the land grabs or territorial disputes we thought that was done largely almost completely I'm, I'm a project that i'm working on right now is to look at the impact of the helsinki accords which were 1975 in which borders in europe were secured and we always thought that that was going to be the future turns out it's not so i guess the answer to your question is who runs the world is a is is tremendously evolving one thing i believe is that many of the things we see in our world violence misogyny racism all those things were in the bible and we're still dealing with them and probably always will so we are run by the things that make human nature what it is complicated
0: It's certainly complicated, and I'm sure my guest today, um, Yusuf Akbar, who happens to teach at the Central European University, uh, the university which was once in Budapest, now in Vienna, which as it happens is funded by uh, George Soros, would agree. But I'm not sure Yusuf would agree with with Osnos about this idea of Ukraine as a dramatic break in the post-war age. He had a a really interesting piece uh, in Politico a week or two ago of race and war, what the crisis in Ukraine tells us about ourselves. And we're going to get into the article in some detail, but it seemed to me that Yusuf was suggesting that what it tells us isn't that different from what it told us yesterday or last year or in uh, 2015. So Yusuf, over to you. Do you agree with us, Nas, that all this represents a return to the 19th century—it's some sort of clean break in history, a return to the savagery of great power politics.
2: Um, first of all, thanks very much uh, for uh, allowing me to come onto the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, you know, uh, how can I put it? You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes—a uh, very famous uh, phrase—and. Um, whilst Mark
0: Twain, I think, although yeah, apparently he didn't really say that, but as with most yeah, things, those, uh, utterances, they're made uh, up or they acquire their own life. But anyway.
2: Yeah. Um, f- from a European perspective, I think it's probably true, you know, that I think there's a lot of shock um, around the place that this this idea that, you know, European borders and sovereignty um, were were somehow kind of sanctified in a post-World War II Era, And then, you know, you kind of add on top the triumphalism of 1989, 1991, where it appeared that, you know, liberal internationalists like myself uh, had basically won the the battle of ideas. The end
0: um, of history is indeed. Fukuyama. Is Fukuyama. So. Yeah, correct. Fukuyama is going to be coming on the show, talk about his new book on liberalism in a month or two. So no doubt we'll bring uh, that annoying phrase up with him. I'm sure he's sick of hearing about it. <laughs>
2: In fact, well, it's interesting because, in fact, when you know, when I uh, when I first started teaching at university in the UK, I was asked to teach an intro class uh, to European history and integration. And uh, of course, one of the first articles I I assigned from a critical perspective was, of course, Fukuyama's famous piece on the the end of history. Um, yeah, but look, I think there are so many contextual differences. Uh, what we're seeing in the twenty first century than than what we saw in previous historical periods. I mean. Uh, f- first of all, when we were looking at land grabs and international invasions and and, and so forth, uh, in earlier periods we didn't have nuclear weapons. Uh, today we have nuclear weapons. So the entire calculus uh, about how we respond to this kind of naked aggression uh, from Putin, I think is fundamentally different. I think that'd be my first point. And I think the second point here is, of course, as, as we pointed out in our article in Politico, um, you know, World War Three, as some people are often referring to, the current situation actually began in many ways um, in the Syrian uh, civil war.
0: Yeah, and we talked about that with Joby Warwick uh, actually a week or two ago as well as Syria as a a beta version, a trial run on the Ukrainian model.
2: Absolutely. I mean, not, not just in terms of the way in which the military uh, devastation was sort of, you know, executed but also in the fact that it had all of the typical ingredients of a world war, where you have, you know, different levels of state power being exercised, uh, the role of a great, in this case, two great world powers, the United States and and Russia. Um, So for me, this uh, tragic um, war in Ukraine is actually a continuation of something that I think began uh, some years ago.
0: Yeah, we had Tom Hartman on the show suggesting that, actually, uh, uh, Putin's invasion of the Ukraine and G.W. Bush's invasion of Euro- Iraq are both oil wars, very much on similar models. But your article and your thinking focuses on the implicit and sometimes explicit racism in, in the way in which we're treating the Ukraine. This is particularly ironic given um, Putin's calls for a clash of civilizations in which he seems to be talking to the non-European, non-North American world about this civilizational clash. And Putin, of all people, doesn't seem to be um, the right person to, to fight the West. But what do you make of all this and how does it fit into your thesis about the, the racism, which is, um, which is uh, haunting many of our thinking about this war?
2: Yeah. I, it's it's a difficult subject uh, because we are we are witnessing just absolutely shocking and horrendous human suffering. Uh, I was walking through Vienna main railway station today and you could see hundreds of of refugees fleeing the conflict in Ukraine. And, you know, you cannot help but be fundamentally Impacted emotionally by that. I mean, I, I was literally struggling to hold back tears because it's it's so absolutely horrendous to see this, you know, with your own eyes.
0: Yeah, and just a use uh, uh, just a reminder: you are, of course, talking to me from Vienna, where you teach at the relocated Central European University, which had been previously in Budapest.
2: Correct, and, and that's and that's and that sort of brings us to, to the next point, which was. You know, when we had a similar refugee crisis in 2014 and when we were still in Budapest, I remember the hundreds, if not thousands, of Iraqi Syrians and Afghans who were fleeing war, gathering in the main railway station in Budapest. And just the, and again, you know, without creating a hierarchy of suffering, because I'm not, we, we weren't trying to do that at all in our article, but just to see the way in which the, the 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 treatment of our Ukrainian friends has been different from the way we, we, we treated our friends from the Middle East. It has really been jarring for me. Um, and and you know, and you know, and there's an argument out there and, you know, maybe there's some truth to it that, you know, you always feel a little bit more, you know, uh, you feel a bit a bit closer to people who are suffering closer to your home. And I for sure, there's no question. There's no question about that. Uh, but you know, I because I'm a liberal internationalist, uh, and I have you know a fundamental set of humanitarian principles which don't which which do not vary based upon uh, race, ethnicity, and and so on. I just found this um, speed with which we were able to do the right thing uh, to help uh, Ukrainians fleeing war, and I contrast it with the at first, you know, lukewarm welcome then very quickly became hostility uh, towards the arrival of refugees from from the Middle East. I found that quite difficult to handle.
0: That's the core argument in your in your in your political piece. It's been very controversial and has become actually quite viral of race and war what the crisis in Ukraine tells us about ourselves. You keep referring to the article being written by we you co authored it with a previous guest of mine. K- Kielowski, uh Kizilowski, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually talking about what he called was the, the moral failure of the West in the Ukrainian uh, invasion. Would you agree with Missy that we have failed morally in the West? We, I mean, it's hard to talk collectively, but do you think that there is a moral failure in terms of our response? Or is that uh, he was actually saying that a week or two ago? With more aggressive sanctions and the more collective response of the West, do you think that's still true?
2: Yeah, so I, I largely agree with Maché's thesis that 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 essentially um, at that time when he made that statement that you know we hadn't taken action, but I but I, I I do think there has been quite a remarkable speeding up of these sanctions, and and you know and if you you know if you I don't know John Mearsheimer has
0: suddenly. Appeared everywhere. Yeah, Mearsheimer has become yeah. a, almost a, a meme in himself. Exactly, he's becoming a bit of a meme, and and, and yeah, and, and a great
2: thinker. And I've got a lot of respect for John Meersheimer. I want to be one hundred percent clear about that. But you know, he you know he's kind of made an interesting observation about this is about power politics once again, isn't it? And in its and it's a kind of a collection of Western developed economies which have democratic systems using economic weapons against an authoritarian declining failed economic project uh from the kremlin and um whereas perhaps in the past it would have very quickly had sort of you know degenerated into hot war military between you know these western countries and 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 putin um it seems to be at this moment in time um that we're not going to step in militarily in terms of us sending troops into ukraine um and we're going to try and use economic levers to to achieve change in, in, in Russia.
0: But uh, as I said, um, Putin is also turning this into a uh, quote unquote, a holy war. And the FT reports that he's calling on foreign volunteers trying to turn it into a clash of civilizations, which in itself implies race. There is some sympathy. And again, we have to be careful here about generalizing. But there's some sympathy with the Russians, certainly in China. Perhaps in South Asia, and in India, in the Middle East, and in Africa. Uh, so it's ironic that Putin, of all people, who uh, is anything but a, a, an anti-racist, seems to be using the the, the weapon, the, the the race card, to build up his coalition.
2: Yeah, I, I would take a slightly different tack. Um, I, I I think if you look at the coalition, you know loose coalition that's emerging here of countries that are not openly criticizing russia Um, so as you mentioned modis india uh the prc um i think what they have in common is a kind of authoritarian ethno-nationalism i mean it's it's quite interesting isn't it that you know across the pond where you are there are a lot of kind of you know ethno-nationalist right-wing politicians in the us really kind of getting behind Putin. I don't know whether you saw that remarkable or remarkable, horrendous speech that was given by one at the America First PAC conference.
0: Yeah, wait, well, wait, Tr- Trump uh, laid the seeds for this, of course, in his um, sympathy, perhaps even uh, friendliness towards Putin while he was in power. And of course, Tucker Carlson has been very controversial in his, again, his meersheimer like recognition or acknowledgement of great power politics, saying that Putin's behavior is no different from any other leader. So you're absolutely yeah. right.
2: And, and so therefore, I think, you know, it, it may be, it may not be so much about a clash of of, you know, sort of quasi ethnic civilizations. I think it's more about a clash of ideas about, you know, do, do we want to have a world of ethno nationalism? Um, or do we want to have a world of liberal internationalism and collaboration? That That's how I see it.
0: Well, your Rather colleague, than... uh, Renata uh, Uitz, was on the show last week. She's an expert on illiberalism. She's the editor of the Routledge book on, on illiberalism. She seems to believe that the Ukraine might be the first global war of illiberalism versus liberalism. Uh, it's it's very jarring. It's very surreal, isn't it?
2: Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And you know, in Renata, you know, being a b- being a jurist, um, being in the front line of what happened to us uh, in Hungary as as the Orbán regime, you know, effectively made it impossible for us to remain.
0: Us as think... Central European University. Sorry when you talk about us, you're talking about yeah, Central, sorry,
2: yeah. Yeah, Central European University, uh, when they passed the Lex CEU, which effectively made it impossible for us to, to function. So, you know, Renata was very much at the front line of sort of, you know, f- fighting the good fight to try and preserve our status in Hungary. And and, and she, you know, she knows a lot about liberalism as well, because she's a Hungarian. So she's actually kind of experienced this kind of shift in, in, in Hungarian, in Hungarian politics, and this kind of ethno-nationalist uh, ultra-conservative, reactionary, um, reactionary direction.
0: It's fascinating. There are so many ironies here. So many layers upon layers. Yusuf Akbar is unwrapping the onion for us. Um, he is a professor at Central European University. I'm going to take a brief break, Yusuf, and I want to come back. I want to talk about what exactly we should be doing in terms of the 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 the, the, the short term in the Ukrainian crisis. And the longer term, if there is indeed a liberal versus illiberal global war, how we need to present, we, I am, I think you and I are probably on the same side. We as liberals present the 21st century, not just as a return to the 19th century. So we're going to take a brief break now, and then we'll be back with Yusuf Akbar from Central University talking, what else can we talk about these days but Ukraine? Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen on show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lit Hub is. And on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well um, in terms of uh recorded videos uh not live you can see all the shows on the LitHub youtube page so whatever your preference whatever your taste whether it's video or audio or text there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show now back to keynote We are back with Yusuf Akbar from Central European University talking about the crisis in Ukraine. Yusuf, um, yesterday I had uh, the progressive academic Gio Mar on the show, Um, who's written a number of books about uh, anti-racist eruptions against colonialism in the West, in Haiti, in Africa. And he compared in a positive way, the U- Ukrainian resistance to Russia as a kind of colonial eruption. Can we use those kind of tools, do you think, to make sense of what's happening?
2: Good question. I mean, I think there are some parallels in the sense that, you know, you you, you have a state, the Russian state, which in various uh, forms, be it a czarist state, be it the Soviet Union, and now this kind of uh, uh, authoritarian um, Russian 21st century state, trying to exercise kind of uh, colonial control over its over its neighborhood. Um, That so that's definitely true. Um, But I think, again, I think, you know, one of the key If you take Putin on his word, and again, you know, there's a debate around whether we should, but if you if you take him on his word, it it seems to be uh, an obsession with the idea of creating a a, a Russian world, you know, which is which is distinct from Europe, which is distinct from Asia. And so therefore, um, you know, within within Russia's neighborhood. what he would say is defending um, ethnic Russian minorities in neighboring countries seems to be at the core of the project and, and, and before 2014, before the um, uh, illegal annexation of Crimea, I actually traveled extensively in, in Ukraine. I, I was involved in various education projects uh, involved with management education in, in, in Ukraine and I you know and I had an opportunity to travel widely through the country. And if one was to go to a city like Kharkov or Kharkiv, as it is in Ukrainian, uh, nobody spoke Ukrainian in 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 Kharkov. Everyone spoke Russian. It it, it was a it was a Russian speaking city, and
0: so um, what's your point? That
2: well, I so so for me, colonialism, you know, ultimately has racial dimensions uh, about one ethnicity trying to impose its supremacy over another ethnicity, and. In this attempt by Putin to sort of occupy, well, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens in the tragic days and weeks ahead. Uh, but tries to occupy Ukraine. The tragedy of this, as much you know, alongside all of the unbelievable human suffering, is cities like Kharkov. You would meet you ethnic Russian Ukrainians who were proud of both being Ukrainian but also their Russian heritage. Um, And so that's the thing that I find so difficult about this is that we have to avoid and this maybe comes on to the what what should we do next part of our discussion, we have to avoid the conflation of the inner coterie of the Kremlin and their kind of objectives with this idea of what it is to be Russian, which I think is um, a multinational construct. So you can be an ethnic Russian in Latvia, and again, I I, I travel I've travelled extensively to Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. You can be ethnic Russian in all of these countries, but very proudly be a citizen of those countries and be very proud of being an EU citizen. So that's I, true. I,
0: but you can also be an ethnic Russian in certainly in, in Estonia, and the Baltics, or in in Ukraine, and actually be sympathetic to what Putin's doing. So we need to be careful here. There's certainly a division within the Russian-speaking community.
2: Yeah, of course there, are all, there will be those divisions, but you know, again, and you know, this is what what I call anecdata rather than anecdote. I mean, I've met enough people in the Baltics over almost twenty years, uh, ten, a decade in the Ukraine, um, to realise that just because we have linguistic and co- and shared values and cultures with you know mother Russia, quote unquote, that doesn't necessarily mean that we support the foreign policy and military objectives of the Kremlin.
0: We talked about this war being the first global illiberalism versus liberalism war. But I wonder whether we could also suggest, given, as you're arguing, the ambivalence of many Russian-speaking communities in Ukraine, in Kharkiv and elsewhere, that this is the first war of our globalized age, where Territory and identity are increasingly in contradiction.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, again, there's, there's been a lot of comparisons, and, and we know how lazy those comparisons can be. You know, comparing Putin to to Hitler and so on. So we have to be like, yeah, we want to avoid that. That, that exactly. Is a, we have that's to be super, thing. super careful. I agree, at uh, uh, one thousand percent. But you know, you know you know, comparisons with the Sudetenland, for example. No, but I, I, I agree with you completely that, you know, this, uh, there is a contradiction here at work. And I think this is also what makes, this is the folly. You know, you know, someone said to me the other day, they said, you know, Vladimir Putin is a great tactician, but he's terrible at strategy, right? In the, in, in, in the sense that, you know, perhaps because he was surrounded by sycophants who didn't want to challenge his authority, he was convinced Uh, that once the, you know, once the Russian military rolled in to Ukraine, he could decapitate the Zelensky regime quickly, probably bring Yanukovych back from southern Russia. Um, Apparently he's actually in Belarus at the moment, that's what I've heard, uh, waiting to be brought back to Ukraine. And I think he's discovered that, you know, ethnicity and, and, and land and nation become much more complicated in this world that
0: we live in today. Yeah, that would have been the 20th century model, which the Russians did after the Second World War. It might not be possible. Now, let's talk we we because we can't change how Putin thinks or behaves. But what about ourselves? In in your of race and war piece, you're quite critical of some of the responses of Western media. You pick on uh, the CBS reporter, Charlie Dagata, who talked about how, quote unquote, Civilized these Ukrainian victims and refugees are. Do we need to get beyond that kind of language?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, but, but you know, but again, uh, I, you know, I can't read into the soul of of the reporters. But this kind of unthinking. Oh well, you know, they're they're white. Many of them are blonde haired, blue eyed, Christian, um, Christian. But again, you know, I mean, Mac- you know, Maciej being coming from Poland, very Catholic country, you know, one of the things, and again, partly through my my work with Maciej, but I've travelled extensively to Poland, and again, you know, Christian Orthodoxy versus Christian Catholicism. I mean, these are two different branches of the same religion. So again, the, the complexities here are so, are so obvious. But I think it's just so lazy and so easy for us in the West to kind of say, well, they kind of look like us, so they're more deserving. Um, than you know, other refugees because they may have a different skin color or they may have a different ethnicity. And I think it's, once you start building that narrative, uh, you get into the very dangerous world of deserving versus undeserving refugees. And then I think we're in a
0: really bad place. What else can we do, uh, Yusuf, in addition to being more careful with our thinking and languages, correspondents and columnists?
2: So, So, so I think that, we just have to be super mindful that our audience today is global. Um, and the suffering that is closer to home that we we witness at first hand is no different than the suffering in other places. Think about what's happened in, in Myanmar with the Rohingya minority there. Think about what's going on in China with the Uyghur minority. Think about what's been going on in Eritrea. I mean. All this is human suffering. And it. And that's,
0: you know, that's back to Peter Osnos's rather pessimistic Old Testament thinking, uh, which he called complicated, but it simply argues that we're bad and we've always been bad and we'll always be bad. Is that really effective? No, it's not. But we can go beyond that, because as, as liberal internationalists, we can
2: talk about the fact that after the World, world War Two, we created a series of international conventions which protect and guarantee the rights of people fleeing war. And we need to go back to those very agreements that we signed after World War Two, And that is the best guarantee we have currently of ensuring that refugees of all ethnicities, all races,
0: get the kind of protection that they need at times of war. Isn't though you're thinking a kind of Progressive liberal, what aboutism? Putin does it from the other side, and people can say, "Well, this Ukrainian tragedy is bad, but what about American behavior in Iraq? What about uh, American behavior here or there, or the history of European colonialism? You're just as bad."
2: Well, yeah, I mean, so the count- so the, so the counter argument is, is the principles that that myself and others would articulate are principles that that transcend. Uh, Particular historical periods. Um, you know, it, it is ironic that today at the United Nations Security Council, Putin's ambassador there is accusing the Americans of uh, collaborating with the Ukrainians to make biological weapons. I don't know if you remember that 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 famous uh, speech that Colin Powell gave to the UN Security Council. Yeah, on uh, Cook
0: data, which we all know now was Cook, it, which, it, I don't, exactly. even he didn't know it was Cook, Didn't seem to, right?
2: yeah, yeah. That's which what, that's, his, that's
0: what he uh, I think it sort of broke his soul in a way.
2: Yeah. So 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 those of us who 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 believe in interna- liberal internationalism have to be mindful of the fact that many of the countries that we believe belong to this family of liberal internationalists will also do
0: things which run contrary to our values. Yusuf, Yusuf, if every time something bad happens, we have to say, well, what about what's happening in China with with, with the wee bars, or yeah. in Myanmar or and we can find many examples in Africa, then at a certain point, don't we just create a kind of moral vertigo, this spinning world where everything seems to be bad and we lose any sense of focus or purpose?
2: So, OK, so there's a, I guess the counter argument would be fine if you're saying that, you know, a global uh, a global focus on on human rights and on refugee issues is going to fail because, as you say, there's this constant sort of like what aboutery that goes on. Um, we can at least begin to focus on regional efforts um, and, and 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 some parts of the world, those efforts are more developed than in others. but. The, but again, I mean the, the counter argument to what we're saying reminds me a little bit of you know of of like why the United Nations can't work. Um, just because the, the issues of coordination and developing consensus are hard, it doesn't mean we should give up on trying to achieve right. collaboration. So you
0: remain a a reasonably optimistic liberal internationalist. You're not uh, um, shy to to to, to uh, define yourself in those terms what institutions Yusuf, needs to be strengthened which are which are which are realistic i mean we could talk about making the un more powerful that doesn't seem particularly realistic are there certain kinds of international organisations systems ideas that we need to work on to begin to create a a more just 21st century globalized age where this tragedy in ukraine might be simply the first chapter
2: here's hoping that it's not the case uh, but not not notwithstanding i think that it's important to 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 focus on the fact that 21st century challenges to kind of a liberal international order are different from those in previous centuries so in particular if you think about the impact of of climate change and on the movement of, of of people worldwide I think we need to create a convention or some kind of internationally enforceable mechanism that copes with the impact of human migration. We have a historically high number of humans on the move at the moment. And if we if we continue to ignore it, it's going to sort of, it's going to feed the ethno-nationalist response. So I think we need to sort of begin to innovate in in that particular area. How can we come up with ways of managing uh, the movement of people around the world in a way that reduces um, interstate conflict. That would be one so, place I would start.
0: So you're saying fighting Putin, fighting Orbán in Hungary isn't just a military thing. It's fighting their ideas with institutions and innovations of our own, which makes a lot of sense. Yusuf Akbar, um, it's an honor to talk to you uh, from from Vienna, where you're seeing some of the consequences of this crisis firsthand, uh, as in the, the the Vienna station where you're already seeing the, the human tragedy of refugees. What else in addition to your piece in Politica, which I think is essential reading for those of us who care about the moral dimension of this crisis of race and war, what else should people be reading? So I'm a huge fan of
2: Tim Schneider. Mm. Uh, Schneider's
0: been on the show actually. He's very good.
2: You know, I, th- I, th- I think, you know, he's, he's managed to capture, some very important ideas, in you know those his two bestsellers, Bloodlands and On Tyranny. And I think, uh, I, you know, uh, as a trained economist, I'm such a huge fan of history and of
0: well written history. And I think he's Is he still the... in Vienna. I um, think he was living in Vienna. I'm not sure if he's yeah, back. I, th-
2: I think he, I think he splits his time um between New Haven and, 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 and Vienna. The future. Uh,
0: uh, I think Vienna. We we all remember, of course, the Third Man where Vienna was really the star of that great post-war, Cold War movie. I think Vienna, with Central European universities moved there, with people like Schneider and Ivan Krastev, it's going to become an increasingly important intellectual center. Uh, Yusuf Akbar, a real honor to have you on the show. I'm asking, finally, uh, all my guests this, and you're particularly well-positioned in Vienna to answer. Yusuf Akbar, uh, who runs the world? Who's in charge in March 2022?
2: As I'm sure like many of your other guests, they say, if only you'd asked me the day before. Um, I'm always very, very conscious of not comparing today with his stock history unless it's fully justified. And I think there are so many structural changes taking place in In the world economy today that I think that those who are in power are those that can control the flow configuration and dissemination of information, whoever they are be they state or non state actors.